Hi, this is Ashley. And this is Kristen. And this is a thousand miles of true crime. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to do part two of the JonBenet Ramsey case. Kristen, how are you feeling after the pineapple and milk? You do not want to know. <laughs> it was um, not only disgusting, but it definitely didn't sit well with me. We'll just go and leave it at that. Um, <laughs> I could not finish. I took one bite and was like, this is not for me. So what about you? How did you feel after this experiment? Um, I have an iron stomach. I was, <laughs> I, I, I was, I was fine, but when we were done, I like cleaned my bowl and I saw like how much of the milk had curdled. And I was so concerned. I was like, we're both gonna actually like die from trying this. Oh, and it wasn't even sitting out that long, but, but I, I'm glad we did it. I feel like it somehow brought us closer to the case. Maybe next time we'll just fly to Boulder. I think that's a better idea than eating a bowl of pineapple and milk. <laughs> well, it might actually be more fun to eat some pineapple and milk than to jump back into the sad case, but let's do it. Um, I want to take you through all the, the theories and just like dig into more of this evidence and kind of what's actually going on during these times. Let's hear it. Okay. So I'm not going to do a full recap, but we'll just jump right into, you know, where we've kind of ended, which is the cops were really messing stuff up. They were, you know, leaking all of this information. They were leaking everything that was making the Ramseys look guilty and they were leaving out a lot of other evidence. So they don't mention that DNA was found, which can obviously be, you know, really good evidence. Um, so I'll, I'll just be honest though. There was DNA found in two spots under the nails and in on her underwear. So the, in it, so it's touch DNA and they find out that on the nails that, you know, they were really hoping she had like scratched whoever got her you know, she had fought and that's how she got this DNA, but it was found that when the coroner was actually her nails, that it, it came from the, the nail clipper and they, they had actually followed the procedure. Like they didn't follow the proper procedure. You're supposed to do, you do one nail for, you know, for one nail clipper, like you have to use a new clean nail clipper for each nail. So you don't contaminate it. And this guy had just used like basically dirty clippers and just did all the nails. Oh man. So botched. So botched. So botched that DNA is now out. Then, um, we still have the, the DNA on the underwear, the touch DNA. And this was always one of my big arguments for the intruder theory. This is how they've actually gone and they've cleared a lot of suspects based off this DNA. And now a lot of people are arguing, like, is that even safe DNA. Like it's a very contaminated source. It's very, uh, it's not a lot of DNA. So it's, you know, they, they don't have a lot to test or go based off of. So this has been a big argument. They, somebody even did a study that said that, you know, they actually purchased underwear, like the same brand, the same size, they test the DNA on that. And they were able to find touch DNA that, the, you know, they're assuming came from like the factory. So, I mean, that is an argument. I think it's strange. Like, wouldn't this have come up before? Like, wouldn't we be finding this on a lot of underwear? Patsy Ramsey doesn't also seem like the type that would let her daughter wear underwear that wasn't washed before wearing it. 
So yeah, I think this is weird. The family wants this DNA tested more. They say we've come a lot further in the last 20 years. They want this tested. They think that this is what's going to crack this case. Let's jump into the intruder theory. The Boulder DA, Alex Hunter, he's sick of the police. Like he's done with them. So he brings in legendary detective Lou Smith. And Lou Smith is, you know, he's pretty famous. Actually, he had solved a similar case and he had one of like the best track records in the Colorado area for solving cases. So they bring him in and right away, he's just examining all the photographs that were taken that first day. And right away, he's frustrated because he notices all of these um, sort of like misconceptions or things that the Boulder police are just blatantly ignoring. He really felt that it was someone that had noticed John Bonet at one of her public appearances. So his theory is that the intruder entered through the basement window while the Ramses were out. So this gave him time to sort of like roam around the house, you know, really understand the lay of the house to get comfortable with it. So that's another thing people point out is this is like a massive house and the basement's really, it's hard to find the basement. And then once you're in the basement, it's all very confusing. It's like a maze. So in his theory, what if you were there for several hours by yourself, you could really start to get comfortable with the layout of the house. It also gives you an opportunity to go through paperwork so that you can, you know, maybe learn more about the Ramses, maybe find a check stub, um, you know, with that $118,000, you know, it, it really gives them an opportunity to take advantage of the situation. It also gives them a bunch of time to practice writing a potential ransom note. So he thinks he's roaming around the house. He's writing the ransom note and he's just waiting for the, for the Ramses to come home. And when they finally do come home, he just hides out silently and just waits until everybody's asleep. He, he thinks that the intruder brings the stun gun up Dominique's room. And then he uses that to immobilize her. And that's how we get the two marks. So this is like a very controversial part of this because, you know, he even later admits that a stun gun really wouldn't be used to immobilize a person or you wouldn't expect it to immobilize a person. So like when you stun someone with a stun gun, they like jump back, you know, like it hurts them and it makes you like jump back. It doesn't like make you fall to the ground. So they point out that that's like a, a very strange part of his theory and doesn't really line up. And nobody talks about this. And so I, I feel horrible even almost bringing it up, but like this little girl was tortured, especially in this intruder theory, we're thinking that the whole reason this person came in there was to basically torture John Bonet. And unfortunately for like the sexual gratification. So I think like, why is nobody pointing out that this literally could have just been a, a horrible torture device? Yeah. They also don't understand how anybody could have gotten her out of her room um, without her yelling or anything. But I, I mean, I think a grown man could easily cover the mouth of a six-year-old and I'm sure she'd be terrified. And I'm sure he'd be telling her like, you shut up or I'm going to kill your family or something like that. And he could have gotten her out of there without a stun gun. Or even more. So he could have covered her mouth with duct tape before like, you know, grabbing her before she could do anything. And then if this house is as massive as it is, if my house and my house is not even half as big as that house, 
if I'm in my bedroom and my son is screaming in his room, I can't hear him. So even if she were to have screamed or something like that, this is a massive house. Maybe they just didn't hear her. Yeah. They always say they never heard anything. And one of the neighbors actually claims that she heard a little girl scream in the middle of the night. So everybody always questions like, well, how come the parents couldn't hear her, but she could. And in my house, I've been in my basement and not heard my son crying, but I've been outside in the back of my yard at the shed and like, and been able to hear him there. So I think it just all depends. And there's also like this theory that there's like a hole in the wall in the basement. And it basically is just like amplifying the noise and, and can make it and could make it so that they could a neighbor could hear it, but the parents couldn't. They do test the theory too. They go onto the fourth floor where the, the parents are and they go into the basement. And you could, even when the house is completely empty, it's very quiet. You there, you couldn't really hear somebody screaming from the basement. But the theory goes that he that he takes her downstairs. He's planning on stuffing her in a suitcase and that's how he's going to leave the house. But then either he was having issues getting the suitcase out of the house or he just basically got impatient and he unfortunately really wanted to sexually assault this little girl. In Lou Smith's theory, the the person actually has like a choking auto erotic fantasy and he believes that he's just choking this little girl over and over again. And then like kind of letting her come back to life and choking her again. And his theory comes from all the like ligature marks on her neck. Oh, that's horrible, Ashley. Oh, it's so horrible. So, um, and he thinks that, you know, then the theory is, so, you know, I forgot to mention this when they wake up or when the police get there and everything, they notice that in the kitchen, there's this big black flashlight and the Ramsey say it's not theirs. They're not sure where it came from. So some speculate that that's actually how the fracture happened in the head. People against this theory will say that a cop just left it there. So the other weird thing is that there's zero prints on it. There's no prints on the battery. There's no prints anywhere on this flashlight. Again, that could be, you know, that can be an intruder who knew they were coming there and put gloves on. It could also be a cop because cops in Colorado in December usually have gloves on. So we're, we're not able to confirm that, but it is very suspicious and it couldn't be ruled out as what caused the fracture on her head. Unfortunately, he, he kills her and he knows like, there's nothing he can do. He decides to not even risk it. He doesn't want to take the body. And so he takes the tape because they never found the duct tape. He takes the leftover twine because they never found what was left of that from what she was tied up in. And he takes the stun gun with him and he books. Smith really noticed a lot of evidence that suggested this. So one of the things he points out right away is that the cops always say, well, it couldn't be an intruder. There's no footprints in the snow. You know, you would see footprints in the snow, but when he's looking at the pictures, there's, there is snow right in the very front of the house, but on the side of the house and the back of the house, there's like patches of snow, but it's not completely covered in snow. A person really could have walked through their yard and not left any footprints and not had snow on their feet when they um, were walking through the house. The other thing is that the cops were 100% convinced that nobody could ever fit through that window properly. So they, that was like another reason that they cut that out of the theory, but I mean, John had already said he went through the window 
I mean, if he can go through it, I think a lot of people could. And Lou Smith decided himself that he was going to prove them wrong. And he went in and he climbed through this window. He was able to do it. He's in his 60s. He was able to, you know, get down there. It wasn't the easiest thing in the world, but he, he didn't really struggle at all. This didn't take a lot of time. The cops do point out that there was a spider web also there when um, they were looking at the window. But other experts say that, you know, a spider can build a web in like an hour. So that could have been rebuilt. It could have been disturbed that night. And by the time the cops got there, the, the spider had already rebuilt its web. So we'd already mentioned the suitcase underneath the window. Another thing is that right almost next to the suitcase on the wall, there's a smudge. And Lou says to him, you know, it looks like somebody's coming in and out of that window and smudging the, the wall. They also found two pairs of high-tech shoe prints. They're like half prints. And they couldn't prove that those belonged to anybody in the house or any of the officers. So it's just this random size eight and a half high-tech boot print in the basement. And the, the cops just sort of brush it off and say like, well, a lot of people have been walking through here. It could have been anybody. Lou said that due to the lack of bleeding in the brain, the killer must have choked John Bonet until she was almost dead and then hit her in the head. So again, that goes back to that, that theory of what he was really doing with the choking. And then there's the obvious issue of the DNA. So I've already discussed like kind of how that, that could be used or not used, but it, it is again, you know, they never mentioned it. They, they certainly didn't leak that information to the press that there was this DNA that they were using to eliminate other suspects. Do you remember who John Douglas is? No, that name doesn't sound familiar. So he was one of the first criminal profilers. So he's like part of Mindhunters from like the whole Mindhunter story on Netflix. Now I know that, but I did not know that that was who it was based off of. Yeah. So um, one of those characters was based off of John Douglas. So he also worked on this case. He worked with the Ramseys to try to solve this. And, uh, you know, again, he's like a, He's a big expert in this area and he does not believe the Ramses did it. And like in his heart, he says that he just feels that it's not them. And he cites a lot of the reasons. One of the things he said that stuck out to me was that it would be nearly impossible for anybody to kill someone and then write that ransom note. Like even a serial killer would have issues writing is such a comprehensive ransom note be like after, after they'd gone ahead and killed somebody. So he says that he feels that the, the, the ransom note was written before the murder. And to, if you're going to blame the parents for that, that's like another level that's, you know, premeditation that's suggesting that wasn't an accident. You know, it's saying that you knew you were going to do this and that's, it's just such a violent murder that it, it's really hard to believe, or, you know, there's nobody coming forward saying, you know, I suspected they were abusive. So the cops were not interested in hearing the Ramses were innocent. They really just kept pushing forward and they eventually, they bring in the FBI again and the FBI is like, what is going on here? Like, why haven't you convened a grand jury to get more information? And they are mad at the DA's office. At this point, they're siding with the cops. They're saying the DA are not following proper procedure. So they go ahead and they go ahead and do a grand jury and to see if they should indict. And I'm sure you've always heard 
the joke that you can indict a, a ham sandwich. Like it's, it's very easy to get an indictment. And, um, even after all of this, they're not supposed to be able to say like what actually came out of a grand jury in Colorado. You're not allowed to like come forward and say that they were found innocent or they were found guilty later. It was leaked that they actually were found guilty, but Alex, the DA, he decided still not to move forward with an indictment. So the cops were furious and uh, to be honest, I think there's a couple reasons for this. I think that he just didn't think he'd get, he'd get a conviction and he didn't want that on his record. Like he needed, you know, like the smoking gun before he was going to take this to court. So there was that. He also just had this history and he had this like bad blood with the cops because he didn't like taking anything to court. Like he believed in negotiating and not having to go to court and like coming up with a plea bargain or a deal. This really infuriated the cops a lot because they felt like a lot of people got off or it was like, you know, they, they either got off completely or they got like a much leaner sentence just because he didn't want to, because Alex Hunter didn't want to take him to court. And it, it, it kind of, you know, it's a trickle down effect. So since he had been there, uh, this, that sort of behavior had gone, you know, across the DA's office and cops were just kind of getting used to the same mentality. And Lou Smith was so frustrated that they were still looking at the Ramseys that he quit. He quit altogether and he started actually working for the Ramseys. He said, Hey, I'm going to retire and I'll continue to work for you guys as like one of your other private investigators. That's one of the things I didn't mention too, was like, they really did hire their whole team of investigators. I know we just went over the intruder theory. So I'm like, sounds like I'm fully on board with saying they didn't do this, but they have money and they're seeing the cops mess up left and right. Like, it's not just that they're only looking at the Ramseys. It's that they're making, I mean, I've just pointed out so many mistakes that they're making. So I think the Ramseys are like, screw you guys. We're going to pay for the expert, but there's, there's still only so much they can do, you know, like they can't get, they also can't get these subpoenas. They can't get these search warrants and things like that, but they really blew a lot of money and they still have a lot of investigators working on this. There's some working for free. There's some that they are paying because they're trying to get this solved. So since we just went over the intruder theory, let's jump into like some potential intruders that aren't actually, you know, part of the family. So the first one that I want to look at is Michael Helgoth. And he worked in a nearby auto salvage yard and he had allegedly had a property dispute with the family, like an incident where they were trying to like buy property that his family had owned, or th- there was just some dispute already between the family. He, he was said because of that and a couple other things, he had actually ended up on the suspect list. You know, he was suffering from de- some depression and a, a recent breakup. Family points to a lot of reasons that he did it, but he committed suicide before the cops could even talk to him. Days after the murder, he killed himself. And when they found the body, there was a stun gun near him. And he also had high-tech boots. So before Christmas, he was telling people that him and one of his friends had some sweet deal and that they're like each going to come into 50 or $60,000. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. And, uh, so 
Also, one of his best friends that they suspect could have potentially done it with him, uh, his daughter was in pageants. So there were some ties to to the family that a coworker had said that Michael once said that he would love to know what it would feel like to crack someone's skull open. He also used to carry around a black flashlight, like the one that was found in the Ramsey's house on the kitchen. You know, right after Christmas, he no longer had this flashlight. Like he wasn't sure where it was. And after he died, no one could ever find that flashlight. But eventually he was cleared because his DNA didn't match and neither did the size of the boots. That's the guy that killed himself. Yeah, that's the guy who killed himself. Okay. But did they have a full shoe print or? It was only a partial. It was a half of half of a shoe print, but they were still confident it was a size eight and a half. Hmm. Okay. Then we have Chris Wolf, and he is a very similar type suspect to Helgoth. And what happened was Jacqueline Dilson, who was his live-in girlfriend, she reported that she thought Chris Wolf did it. And she actually, she had called the police and said that she was convinced he did it. And they never called her back. They didn't take her seriously. So she looked up Patsy Ramsey's mom and called Patsy Ramsey's mom and said, hey, I'm really concerned that my boyfriend Chris Wolf did this. So finally, the cops called her back. What they find out is that, so she says that they had Christmas dinner together and then sometime around 10, he leaves because she, she notices like she's going to bed, he's taken off and she thinks he's going to go to the bar or something. But then she doesn't see him again till early in the morning around five. She, that's when she says she hears him in the bathroom showering and, and then he just gets into bed like nothing happened. But the next morning when the JonBenet Ramsey case is hitting the news, he's getting like really upset about it. He's really frustrated and is just like visibly getting, you know, distraught about this whole situation. He's the one who couldn't be cleared on the ransom note. But the ransom note you're saying he wasn't. The ransom note that when they, when they took his writing sample, they couldn't clear him and they, but they, they're just going off the DNA and they, they cleared him that way. They also thought it was suspicious that, that the girlfriend kind of had the times like, right. Uh, like they, you know, they knew the Ramseys got home at 10 and they knew that, you know, Patsy had woke up at five 30. So they thought it was like sort of convenient that she was throwing out those numbers specifically. Okay. That's interesting. but it's weird. So another thing that's sort of weird and ironic timing wise is that exactly 20 years to the day and he like if it was him it would just make the story so much creepier, you know, Santa sneaking into your house to kill your daughter on Christmas night. Like how horrible would that be? But Bill's the one who dressed up for the Ramsey family. And he didn't just do it for the Ramsey family. He did it for a lot of the rich families in the neighborhood. Five years. And he was also uh, one of 
Patsy Ramsey's old journalism professor. So they, he had a close relationship with the family. And he had told John Bonet that he would come and visit her on Christmas night and bring her something special. So, yeah, a lot of people think that's weird. You know, other people point out that that could have been a really innocent conversation that, you know, she thinks it's Santa and, you know, what does Santa do on Christmas night? He brings you presents, but, but it's weird. So another thing that's sort of weird and ironic timing wise is that exactly 20 years to the day from when John Bonet Ramsey was attacked. So on the 26th, his daughter was actually kidnapped with one of her friends and they were also both assaulted. I mean, they survived. It was just, you know, was that just weird timing? You know, some people think it was like a trauma reaction. I think that possibly this is why he was so close with like the whole John Bonet thing after she was gone, even though, because he, he was probably thinking like that could have been my daughter, like my daughter could have been killed. So he's probably just really grateful that, you know, that she did survive that situation. So his wife actually wrote a play about a girl that was tortured and murdered in a basement. What in the, what in the hell? Yeah. I mean, what I, this is like one of the things I'd always remembered about the case, but I did my digging and I really, I wanted to look into it and I was, you know, shocked to find out that it was actually about Sylvia likings. Do you, do you, you probably don't remember that off the top of your head. Do you? No. This is a real story. Let's just add this to the list. This is another one we need to cover, but this is the case. It's in Indiana and this family is like part of the circus. I think I should have done a little more research on this, but they're like part of the circus. They have to go travel and they trusted a woman at their church to watch their two daughters. And this woman's like a little crazy. She's dealing with some alcoholism too. I think there's a lot going on and she's treating these girls like shit, especially this one little girl. And who's, I want to say like 13 or 14 at the time, please don't kill me if that's wrong, but she is really like, she's treating her horribly. And then the parents stopped paying. So she was like giving them money. They were giving them money to let the girls live there. And like that just took her over the edge. And she really starts treating this girl like crap. And she would like take her downstairs and torture her. And she'd have like the neighbor kids come and torture her and cut her. And like, they eventually ended up beating her to death horrible, horrible case when, you know, at first glance, it sounds like it's very, very similar to the JonBenet Ramsey case, but really it's not at all. And so, you know, again, it's like, is that really evidence? I I don't think so. Like you see the correlation, but no. Right. Well, yeah. When you just present it like that, like she wrote a play about a girl that was tortured in a basement, then you're like, Oh my God, that is that's really, you know, is that it's too coincidental, but again, it, it's, you know, it's not like a six-year-old like there, this is, and it was based off a true story. She didn't make this up. So another thing that is just, come on, Bill, <laughs> like when the cops show up, he's, he's trying to be really helpful. Like he's, you know, he's, he's not like the Ramses. He's not lawyering, lawyering up. He's like, here's my DNA. What do you need? This is where I was at. Like, tell, how can I help? But he also says, you know, this is so ha- sad. This happened to one of my other little boys that I was a Santa for too. What a way to really put yourself in a situation you do not want to be in. Yeah. I mean, the cops left like, oh my, we found our guy. 
they look into that, that he was not related in that at all. Um, but it, it was just like a weird timing to say it. John Benet Ramsey had actually given him gold glitter. Like this was like, you know, this is a thing that they did. She would always give him gold glitter. And he said, this was one of the reasons that she always stuck out to him. And he always remembered her was that he's played a Santa for so long and no child had ever given him a gift, but it was really important to John Benet to be able to give him a gift. So when Bill McReynolds dies, he asked to have his gold glitter mixed into his ashes. Creepy. So yeah, it's creepy. A lot of people, you know, being a creep doesn't mean you're a murderer. That's true. But that's creepy as fuck. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. I just think, I think we can all agree he's a creep. Um, I think there's evidence to prove that he didn't do it. And his family, you know, stresses that this really, like, this broke him. I mean, always being um, considered a suspect really, like, put a damper on the end of his life. And there was never any hairs or fibers found from Bill in the house. And he had, like, a full Santa beard, and it was a real one. So, I mean, he had a lot of hair. So they suspect that, you know, you would have found some of that hair there or something somewhere. And Bill had really like a lot of health issues. Like he had just gotten like heart and lung surgery, you know, it took him like four months to recover. And so a lot of like the cops really 100% think that he was way too frail to ever, you know, kind of perform any of this. Like they think like he's not gonna be able to climb through a window and attack this girl. And some people point out that they think that somehow he actually got JonBenet just to let him in. So like he didn't even have to climb in and out of that window. The cops say there's no way that his heart was way too bad. He wouldn't have been able to handle something like this. I'm also just imagining, you know, this creepy Santa Bill guy, if he didn't go in through the window and John, let's say John Vinay did let him in, but uh, like, no, How, how do you get her in the basement? tie her, tie her up. And no, I, I don't, I don't see him. Yes. He's creepy, but I, I don't, I can't visualize that. Yeah. He gets, he gets ruled out. I mean, at first they, they won't rule him out based on his alibi because he was at home sleeping. Him and his wife went to bed at eight o'clock because they were old and it was like Christmas. It was a long day. Um, and a lot of people argue like, that's not a real alibi. Like your wife, you could have snuck out and your wife wouldn't have known. He lived over an hour away. His DNA obviously also was not found there and they didn't find any of these hair and fibers. So they go ahead and they rule him out. Yeah. That sounds like a good exclusion, but I mean, I get it. He, he sounds like a, a real creep, but like you said, a creep doesn't make you a murderer. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the press really kind of focused on him because it, I mean, it's, it's great for rating. It's fitting. <laughs> it's fitting. And I'm sure the media had a field day with that. Yeah. I mean, what's scarier than your parents doing it? Like Santa, like, I think, you know, let's get into the Burke theory. And uh, I, I say it like that because this was the theory my family believed. So like this was kind of the one that I heard. This is the story I heard growing up around the Christmas tree. This theory is we've already talked about it. Burke's like not maybe not loving the fact that he's an older brother and 
that his little sister is this little star. So the theory goes that the parents go to bed. Um, Burke decides, hey, I want to keep playing with my toys and, you know, maybe he wants to grab a snack. So he sneaks downstairs. He's playing. He's got this pineapple and that John Bonet comes and she grabs one piece of pineapple out of the bowl. So that's how her prints aren't on any of the things, the bowl or the spoon or anything, but that she somehow digested this pineapple. And this infuriates him. Like he can't get anything. He's, you know, you know, she's even taking my pineapple. And so he loses it and he hits her in the head. And then once he hits her in the head uh, and she's basically, you know, passed out, she's blacking out that Patsy comes down and Patsy sees what's happened. You know, maybe John has also seen what happened and they freak out. And she's like, I can't lose my son too. I can't lose my son. Uh, we have to do something. And that's when this whole incident is staged. So that's when, you know, she, the theory is that's when Patsy writes out the ransom note and they do all this stuff. There is some stuff supporting this argument. First of all, Burke did hit John Bonet in the face with a golf club. So the parents claim it was an accident, uh, but allegedly you know, he had gotten frustrated and he hit her with the golf club and they actually had to take her to a plastic surgeon because she was going to have a scar on her cheek. You know, Patsy couldn't have her little star with a, you know, a scar on her cheek. So she had to get surgery to like fix that situation. So there's that. There's also, there's a lot of weird bathroom habits with this family. So um, we'll get into that. You know, they say that John Bonet was possibly, or most likely was a bedwetter. But Burke was known for spreading his like feces on her stuff. Like he would get mad and, and I, I mean, I don't know. You've had a nine-year-old boy before. I had three brothers. Thankfully they, they could have been, they were horrible at times, but they never did that to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I grew up with two brothers and I can't, I mean, yeah, we fought all the time, but I can't recall them ever doing something that obscene. And then, you know, I've got an 11 year old. He's never done anything like that ever. That's strange and awkward. And that would actually be kind of alarming. If I saw that my son did that to his sibling, I would be really concerned, <laughs> really concerned. Yeah, absolutely. So that day, actually, on Christmas Day, they even found some of this on one of her Christmas presents. So it was on some candies that she had gotten. And yeah, they were able to prove it was his. So like, no matter what, like, that doesn't mean he killed her, but that definitely points to something weird is going on. I mean, did he hate her? Was there any, you know, I guess, evidence of him showing some type of hatred towards her, like at a, at a next level outside of sibling rivalry or sibling, you know, animosity. I mean, was there anything like that or any mention of that? So it's hard to say, cause there's some people that have came forward, like after the fact, sold their story to a news, you know what I mean? But there's like, there's no hard evidence that people point to, to say like, this was like that they were constantly fighting. I mean, besides the 
the golf club incident, which is, it's probably pretty bad. When did the golf club incident happen? Was it close to the time where she was murdered or was it like years before? No, I think it was within that year. So Ooh. it was like, it was recent. And so some other things that people always point out is that they finally got to interview him after the fact. And, you know, they bring in like the child psychologist and stuff. And he just doesn't seem very beat up by the, like he's, he even says like, I'm just trying to move on with my life. And this is like a month after his daughter, like his daughter, I'm sorry. This is like a month after his sister has been killed. And he says that he's not afraid. You like, wouldn't you be like, I'd be really afraid if so I thought someone was in my house, but potentially for a long time too, and came in and killed my sister. Like I, I would be really afraid. And he was just like, no. Like, I, like, I don't think anyone's coming back. It's so strange because I feel like trauma does different things to different people. You know, you mentioned that they never went back to that house after that, right? They never went back to that house. His life's changed drastically, even if it's a month later. But I, I don't know. I just, in the trauma that I've experienced or that my family's experienced, I feel like you just have no clue how someone is going to respond or react after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're nine, like, yeah, you know, (laughs) you're still developing, you're still learning how to process feelings, process emotions. And I don't know, man, that's, but I mean, Oh, the golf club situation is concerning the poop smearing it wherever that's concerning. Um, but him having this strange reaction or like response to these interview questions, you know, he's in the limelight. I'm sure the media was everywhere all the time. And I don't know, like if you haven't really like lived a life like that, where you're out in the limelight like that, how I can't say that I would know how I would react. And I'm an adult. Yeah, this is jumping ahead. So I'll have to come back. But since you brought us there, uh, did you by chance see the Dr. Phil episode with him? I'm sure you haven't. No. (laughs) (laughs) I was like saying that. I was like, no, you haven't, of course. But he went on Dr. Phil, so awkward, to be honest. Like he was just awkward. And the whole time he kind of has this like grin on his face and everybody like points this out and they, they talk about how awkward he is. A lot of people think that there's a good chance he's on the spectrum, even that, he, you know, he might be autistic. Maybe that's why the family was really trying to cover for him. Not, not saying they were covering for him for the murder, but just, you know, just knowing that, you know, he's gonna approach an interview different than like maybe a normal kid will say that's not the right word, but you know what I mean? And so one thing I have to say is I'm totally guilty of this. Like the more awkward I feel, the more I will smile. Like I'm the worst at a funeral. Like if I'm devastated, I'm going to look like I'm having the time of my life. So I don't, I just don't think it's fair to be like, well, he was smirking. And I'm like, yeah, cause he was in like a very uncomfortable situation. Like he probably did this interview cause he needed money. It's not that he actually wanted to be there. And, you know, just talking about that he's awkward. Yeah. His, you know, his sister was murdered when he was nine. He was probably like kept away from people for a very long time. People suspected it was him. Like I'm, I'm guessing he didn't have a normal upbringing after that. So if he wasn't weird again, I'd probably be questioning that. 
I agree with all those things that you just said. (laughs) So let's bring it back to that day though. And some other just weird, unexplainable situations. So we talk about how, you know, Patsy had hung up the phone call when she called 911, but she didn't fully hang up. Like you're going to, you can hear something going on in the background and they had all these people try to test it and figure out what was said and nobody could figure it out. They finally send it to, I want to say it was like NASA and they're able to, to kind of get something off of that. And so when they listen to that call, they hear, I'm sorry, just a side note. The Ramseys have said that Burke was asleep through all this. Like when they called 911, Burke was asleep. And they hear what sounds like a man. So we're going to assume it's John Ramsey say, we're not speaking to you. And then like kind of in that tone of how you talk to a child. And then you hear an over, you overhear a woman's voice saying something like, what did you do? Help me, Jesus. And then it sounds like you can hear a second voice. Like it's possibly a child. This is like the smaller voice you can hear say, what did you find? So a lot of people argue that like, why why are you lying about it? Like if he's up, why are you lying about it? And the other thing that I think is weird is why wouldn't you wake your son up? Especially if he's older. Like if my daughter was missing, I would go wake him up right away and be like, did you see anything last night? Did you hear anything, anything suspicious? But they claim they didn't wake him up. Burke claims that like he heard his mom yelling at some point she came in. John was like, kind of like go back to sleep and turned off the lights. And then the next time that he like sees someone come in, it's an officer with a flashlight and he still doesn't get out of bed at this point. And again, that's like one of those things that people think is really weird. Like, wouldn't you jump out of bed if a cop came into your room? I think there's a chance he was just scared again and, and not sure what's going on. Um, no, Ashley kids are nosy as hell. Okay. If two things, I don't even know how many things I'm about to list off, but I know kids are nosy and if they hear any, any, even the slightest bit of commotion, they're going to be all ears, all ears. And if my child, I've got two kids. If, if I go and I see a ransom note that one of my children is missing, I am going to not just go to the other child's room. I'm going to go up to them, feel them, make sure that they are physically really there and probably wake them up because I'm going to be like freaking out. So that is suspicious. You know, the, the remnants of the 911 call that they're saying they heard the, uh, the, a man say, we're not talking to you. And a mother say, what have you done? God help me. And then them saying, you know, that he was asleep through all this or just in his room through all this. There's no way there's no way. Kids are nosy. And I don't know about rich white kids, but kids are nosy. You know what I'm saying? They are. Uh, you're, yes. Like, I, I can't even. Yeah, of course they are. Like, I don't even know why I was like almost defending this. You're so right. Uh, I, I know if I was a kid, I would have ran down there. And if I was scared, I'd want my mom. I, I don't think that, you know what I mean? I don't think I'd want to just sit in bed. But that's a great point. Again, I can't speak for rich white children, but... <laughs> Poor, poor white children would have been down there. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't know. I, and I too, I'm nosy. I feel like, um, so I just think it's just, it's a natural reaction. If there's any type of commotion, well, what's going on? Let me, let me take a peek out the window or let me go sit by the stairs, the top of the stairs and try and listen to see what's happening. And then too, it's his sister. He's nine. It's his sister. So that's, um, that's very suspicious. Yeah. And it's, and it's his little sister. So it's, it's all weird. But I do want to take this moment to make it clear that me and Kristen absolutely do not think that Burke did it. And that is because CBS came out with a whole documentary basically accusing Burke and he sued them for $750 million. So Burke, we know you're innocent. Please don't come for us. We have no money. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't know how much he actually got. They did end up you know, settling outside of court and they did not, you know, they didn't say how much you got, but if you're starting, you're, you're asking for 70, you're asking for 750 million. I'm assuming you got a big chunk of change there. And shame on PBS, shame on them. Yeah. I I did see the documentary. They definitely like they, they weren't even trying to hide who they thought did it. So that's horrible. So I'm going to briefly touch on, I got a couple more theories to go over. Uh, I, I can't knock over the chance that it was John Ramsey. So people always cite um, the incest thing and the potential, you know, the molestation. And another thing that's really weird, and this could, you know, really go for either of them. You know, they found that there was this dictionary and in it, like a page was folded over and it was highlighting the word incest. People definitely thought that was weird. Um, the cops tried to like track down and see if he had any allegations with his other daughter or anyone else. They couldn't find anything. Eventually they kind of took, they did kind of take it off the table, but the theory goes that, you know, he, this is disgusting, but that he had been, you know, molesting his daughter long-term and then maybe something had gone wrong and she had either pushed back and he got angry this theory goes a lot of different routes. Like in one theory of this, they say that, you know, Patsy walked in and got mad at John Bonet and lost it. But um, either way, like th- this is kind of the theory that, that he hid the body in the house and then he was just waiting to find it so that he could destroy evidence. Uh, well, if the, if, if the theory is that Patsy may have like walked in on something or knew something, I don't think that there's any way that she would have defended her husband or, you know what I'm saying? Like they would have been on the same side. Yeah. Cause in that theory, she would have been, cause he's been cleared. He didn't write the ransom note. So in that theory, she's standing behind him to the point where she's writing a ransom note. So I could see her defending her son and just being like, I've lost my daughter. He's all I have left. I don't see, especially not that I know Patsy, but I'm just saying like the person that she portrays, at least to the media is like a strong, sassy woman. Like she, and she loved her kids and loved being a mom so much. Like, I just don't believe she would have stood behind John Ramsey if he had done this. So that's a perfect time to bring us to Steve Thomas. And he was one of the police detectives on the case. And he was furious with the DA. Like he'll tell anybody who'll listen that like the DA were not 
acting morally and that they were just taking the side of the Ramses and that it was ruining this case. So he quit. He couldn't do it anymore. He was like, fuck this. He quit. And he wrote this letter of resignation that was like scathing. Like it was a tell all he, he got to say everything that he wanted to. And, and then eventually he would actually go and he would write a book. So this all comes from the book. And he believes that Patsy killed her daughter. He was like 100% convinced that she wrote the ransom note. He thinks that Patsy was exhausted. It, you know, it'd been a long day. It'd been a long holiday season. They'd been doing a lot. She now needs to get ready for this long vacation. And she, she openly said she didn't even really want to go to Michigan. And so she's already frazzled with John Bonet because John Bonet that day refused to wear a matching outfit with her mom. Patsy was always dressing them alike, like her little mini me. And John Bonet put her foot down that day on Christmas and said, no, I don't, I don't want to dress like you and refused to wear what her mom had picked out for her. So there was already this like little, you know, fight at the beginning of the day. So as theory continues that they get home and Burke is playing and Patsy gives, you know, Patsy gives him some pineapple and John goes ahead and tucks John Bonet into bed and he reads her a book. So this is different because at one point when they interviewed John, he said that he read to his daughter to put her to sleep. And then later he said, no, she was actually just asleep the whole time. And I just put her right to bed. So there's some conflicting stories here, but in his theory, he thinks that she, he really did read her to bed and then everyone goes to sleep. But Patsy, cause yo, what happens that last night? A mom is up packing and washing clothes and making sure that everybody's ready. So she doesn't even get to go to bed. And so she's working all hard to get everyone else organized. And John Bonet Ramsey wets her bed again. She's so sick of this. This is like, this is one of those things that they deny. They deny that John Bonet ever had a bedwetting issue, but they had pull-ups for a six-year-old in the house. The housekeeper talks about how like, Patsy was always like washing John Bonet's sheets before the housekeeper got there because she didn't even want the housekeeper to know that her daughter had a bedwetting problem. And, you know, there's stains on the mattress. They have a rubber sheet. Like there's a lot of signs that John Bonet had a bedwetting issue and they refused to acknowledge this. They said, nope, she doesn't have an issue. In this theory, Patsy's pissed. She goes and she grabs another pull-up and the pull-ups are actually like hanging out of the cabinet when the cops get there. So she's grabbing more clothes and they think that potentially this is where the vaginal trauma actually comes from. So Steve Thomas thinks that it's more of a corporal punishment situation, which I guess is unfortunately really common. Like parents will get really frustrated and then they'll like aggressively wipe their child or just do things, horrible things along those lines. So at some point, Patsy just loses it and she ends up like pushing John Bonet or something, but they think that that's when she got the head injury. They think like maybe she, you know, shoved her and she had hit her head on the tub and that's what caused this major fracture. And at this point, Patsy's freaking out. I mean, she's just panics taken over. 
Um, her daughter's not moving and you know, she thinks she's dead. She doesn't know what to do. So she moves her body down to the basement. And so then at this point, Patsy's looking for a diversion. She knows she needs something. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to do with the body. So she comes up with this plan and she's going to write this crazy long ransom note. This is why she's sitting there practicing. And this is why she's comfortable. It's her own house. And she's trying and trying to rewrite this note. And finally, she thinks she gets it perfect. So she lays out the note and then she comes back downstairs. And that's when she realizes, oh, my God, JonBenet is not actually dead. Um, but maybe she's showing signs that she's got brain damage. Like at this point, Patsy thinks I, I still can't I still can't call an ambulance. I still they're still going to question this. Like I have to just go for it. So that's when she grabs her own paintbrush that's sitting about two feet away. And then she wraps the rope around. She wraps the rope around JonBenet's neck and kills her. Then she goes and she finishes the staging. She ties her arms. She puts the duct tape over her mouth. So this is one of the things they mentioned too, because when they look at the duct tape, it doesn't appear there's any tongue imprints or that the lips are moving around. So they think it's staging. They think she was already dead or unconscious when the tape was put on her mouth. She also wrapped her in a blanket, which we also see a lot of times when people have compassion or they, they regret what they've done. And then this is kind of the kicker for him is that somebody, whoever it is, but in his theory, Patsy leaves her favorite nightgown for her sitting there right next to the body. They find her favorite nightgown. If it's just some random intruder, how do they know it's her favorite nightgown? Um, they also find a little splatter of blood, like a little patch of blood on the nightgown. They never say where that blood is or like what that came from, but it is JonBenet Ramsey. Then she leaves the house and finds somewhere to ditch the practice letters, the rest of the duct tape and the remaining cord. So the theory is like, maybe she just dumped it in a neighbor's garbage can, or maybe she like threw it in a storm drain, something and then she got back home before anybody could see her. But now she's running out of time. You know, it's this really has taken all night. She actually hears John upstairs. He's like getting in the shower. So he's up. She's got little, she's got, she's got like no time left. So what does she do? She starts screaming. She alerts John to the situation and she calls the cops and she completely forgot to change. Like she, so that's why she's still wearing what she wore the night before. It's not because she put it back on. It's because she never went to bed. Then she was able to fool him for seven hours as they're trying to solve a kidnapping. John was really quiet when the cops came and Steve believes that this is because he had probably just read the ransom note and he's starting to really suspect that Patsy did it, but he's, you know, he's with the cops. He still doesn't know where his daughter is. So they speculate that when he disappeared for about an hour that he actually went downstairs and that's when he found his daughter. And that's the point that he decided that he needed to protect his wife. So there's a couple theories on what happened here as well. So some people think that Patsy had just staged John Bonet and that she was always sitting in that room. One of the things that's really weird is that Fleet White had went into that room that day and says he didn't see anything. He also says he couldn't find the, the light switch. So he never turned the lights on, but he claims that just looking in the room, he, do, he couldn't see anything. So some people speculate that they, that Patsy really had shoved John Bonet into that suitcase, into the suitcase. Thank you so much. Because they find some of John Bonet's 
DNA in that suitcase. So they think that maybe she shoved her in there and thought like, I'll get rid of the body after the cops leave. But then either, you know, but then at that point, John realizes like these cops aren't leaving. He's just found his daughter and decides to stage the body in the room. And he's hoping someone else is going to find her. But when they don't, now he needs to be the one to go down there and find her. And then basically kind of destroy all of this evidence. And that's that this was all planned out, that he found her. That's why he ripped the tape off. That's why he's touching the body. That's why he moves her. That's why he puts the blanket on her. All of that is to protect his wife, Patsy. So that, that is what Steve Thomas and most of the Boulder police that were working on the case, like that's their theory. That's 100% what they think happened. That's insane. That's like a lot of who assumptions that I don't want to say don't all necessarily make sense, but um, a bedwetter making you that upset to harm them in that way. And I get like, I've had bedwetters and it is frustrating, but that just, that just sounds so acted out, like such a, such a strong assumption of actions made and played out after someone wet the bed. And I just, I feel like that's a bit extreme. So I guess it's, I'm not gonna say it's common, but I I guess parents can really lose it, especially if this is like a long-term issue. Um, And I, she was having some issues. Like she was having some issues down there. They cited her doctor cited that she wasn't wiping properly. That's like an actually very common issue with little girls, you know? So some of this trauma down there could even be from like things as simple as bubble baths. So it's, it's hard to say where all that came from. Overall, the other thing that, you know, Patsy brings up herself is that this is bedwetting. Like she's just survived stage four cancer, right? Like she's that's too much (laughs) yeah like she's just had a and she also points out that like john's lost a daughter like both of them are not gonna get so mad about like they're just happy to be alive like they're not losing their mind over some bedwetting but it's hard to say i mean a lot of his evidence does kind of fit into place him and lou go back and forth because they were working together for a while you know, they were, they considered each other's friends, even though they had polar opposite views of what happened and they would spend hours and hours just debating and they could not. And these are two really good, smart detectives that had polar opposite theories and could not make each other see each other's side. See each other's point. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't see each other's point. So that's basically my last, like very serious theory. Honestly, there's like five others I could go down. Um, I will tell you some other quick ones. There's John Mark Carr. I don't know if you remember him, but he, I want to say it was 2006. He was this freaking crazy guy who confessed to killing John Bonet. Um, He had already been, he was a teacher and he had already been arrested for child pornography in the past. And he had flown, I should have wrote this down. I think it was Thailand. He was hiding somewhere though. And he was talking to to somebody and basically confessed to killing her. So that person turned him in and the Boulder police fly him all the way to Boulder to interview him. 
And like within the first couple sentences, they knew he didn't do it. Like the, he just didn't have any of the information, right? Like he was just, I don't know, trying to get famous, trying to get close to her. There was a lot of these situations though, where like these like creepy guys are just obsessed with JonBenet and, you know. Inserting themselves into the case. Exactly. Yeah. They found that he was just a creep and that he actually wasn't part of this case. And then there's also the Katy Perry theory. So do you know about this? No, this is a new theory. So people speculate that Katy Perry is actually JonBenet Ramsey all grown up, even though they're very different ages. Yeah. Leave it to the internet. I'm sure that was like a TikTok thing. That's an actual thing that they really believe or that like is speculated. Yeah. This is like a real theory. There's people who, who spent so much time trying to prove this. The last one, I'll I'll have to find the picture and post it. This one's a little weird, a little out there again, but it's kind of part of the whole like pizza gate conspiracy. So at her last pageant and one of the last pictures that was taken, there's this profile. There's this profile of a woman. And like right next to her that you can see in the picture. And it kind of looks like Ghislaine Maxwell. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people speculate that somehow John Bonet ended up uh, uh, one of their victims. But again, this is mainly just internet. There's no, uh, th- there's, there's not a lot of evidence behind it, except for this one big nosed woman <laughs> profile in the picture. Jeez. I feel like, I mean, with all that you covered at this point, anybody could have done this to this poor girl. Unfortunately. Yeah. There's so, and like the, the suspects keep coming. There's no end in suspect. I don't know. So in 2006, unfortunately, Patsy passes away from ovarian cancer. So it came back and she passed away. A lot of people were hoping that there would be some sort of deathbed confession. Uh, there was not, um, to be honest, I think there probably wouldn't be because unless it was truly her all by herself, I think like, what would that really have done? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that would have cleared John. I don't think it would have necessarily cleared her son. Like everybody would have thought that they were somehow involved too, but yeah, she swore till the day she died that she had nothing to do with her daughter's murder. And in 2008, the Boulder DA's office cleared the Ramseys of the murder. So they got a new DA in. And when this DA was researching all the, all the evidence and stuff, um, she made the controversial move to go ahead and make a public announcement saying that she wanted to clear the Ramseys. She didn't think that they did it. Well, I, I don't know if we'll ever know who actually did it, but I don't think that the Ramseys did it. I don't think it was Burke. I don't think it was the parents. And I think it's so incredibly sad that Patsy died without ever, you know, without knowing who, who did this to her daughter. Yes. I mean, she never got to find out who did this to her daughter. And she ever, she also never got to hear that her name was cleared. Not that that really helped. I think people who believe Patsy did it still think Patsy did it. I think that, um, I think that it, how do I say this? I think it makes more sense that they did it. I mean, that's like the more logical explanation, if that makes sense. But I, 
I think a lot of the stuff that made them look really guilty was really their lawyer saying like, you can't talk to them. Like you can't do this. You can't do that. So, so it's, I mean, it's hard to say. I also think the Ramsey's like still did a lot of it. And again, maybe this is part of the strategy, but like, I've seen a lot of stuff air with John Ramsey still pushing for them to like get new people on the case to test the DNA to like do all this stuff where you think if you did it or you really thought someone in your house did it like you just silently back away and hope like hope that this eventually goes away and people stop talking about it because I mean like obviously you can still be convicted of murder at any point so Um, I just think you'd be trying to bury it as much as possible, but like, he's still paying people to work on this case. He's still, he meets with Barbara Walters every time he can kind of thing to try to get the the name out there and and try to get this case solved. What do you, what do you guys think? Do you you think the Ramseys did it? Do you think it was an intruder? Do you think we'll ever find out? Ashley, so you did such an amazing job with your research on this case. I just have to like tip my hat to you because like I said, I, I knew very little about this case and now I know so much. I, I wouldn't say that my view on who I think is responsible for this has changed. I still stand behind it being an intruder, but I really thoroughly enjoyed you sharing this case with me and I hope our listeners will as well. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I do hope everybody else enjoyed it. Um, there's always a lot on this case this time of year, like right around the holidays, right around Christmas. So um, I'm sure there's a lot you guys can check out. Well, thank you again. Thank you again. No, thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Please, please give us a review, five stars, give us a rating, uh, follow us on social media, and please tell your friends. We're just getting started. Kristen, you're always one of my favorite people. And then I got you obsessed with true crime podcasts and I knew that we were going to be friends for life. We were inseparable, but COVID created the perfect opportunity to move me and my family to Texas, which created a thousand miles between us. We were determined to stay close, but found that we were spending all of our time just talking about different cases. And that's when we knew it was finally time to start that podcast that we had always been dreaming about. Kristen, what interested you in true crime? From a young age, I was always sneaking and watching Unsolved Mysteries and any true crime shows I could get my eyes on. But when I was 12, a friend of mine named Rachel Mellon went missing. Her case is still actually unsolved to this day, and it haunts me on what happened. I also have personal family ties to true crime. What piqued your desire to start a podcast, Ashley? Well, I've been working on my master's in communications and I figured we should find something fun to do with that. 
But I've been obsessed with true crime forever as well. And when I was in the seventh grade, my neighbor actually murdered a girl and he hid her body underneath the stairs of his porch. So I would walk past those stairs every day on the way to school for over a week before the cops would finally find the body. Besides that, I'm also obsessed with all things haunted and I have a ghost crew and we're often going to different sites of historical murders. And I mean, often a lot of times there was a, a messy death when there's a haunted location. So I'm so glad that we finally took the time and the challenge to start this podcast because it's been a lot of fun and it continues to bring us even closer together, even if we're a thousand miles apart. Come join us in our true crime adventures. Whether you're close by or over a thousand miles away, we know you will enjoy a thousand miles of true crime.